Hi there. Welcome to another Dishcast. This is a little different. It's a conversation I had, a lengthy one, with Johan Hari, the journalist, uh, the author of Chasing the Scream, The First and Last Days of the War on Drugs, a brilliant analysis of the history of the drug war, and Lost Connections, Why You're Depressed and How to Find Hope, which is an unbelievably interesting and fresh approach to the question of depression and how to counter it. He also has a, a website, johanhari.com. Johan has become a, a really good friend because he's also an extremely diligent researcher and reader and actually one of the few people who ever read my own dissertation in a preparation for profiles for me of me like many years ago. Um, we stayed in touch and he decided he wanted for his own podcast to do an interview with me about my upbringing, my background, my politics, and specifically also faith and religion and the future. And we went on for a very long time in a very riveting, I hope, anyway, that's a little self-puffy uh, to say, but nonetheless, it was a really interesting conversation. And while I'm off sunning myself in the tidal pools and resting for the year, we thought we would give it to you. This is part one, and I really hope you enjoy it. He's one of the most read bloggers in the world with over a million readers, including, as we now know from one of his press conferences, Barack Obama. Uh, in case you followed this, the link from Andrew's website, hi Barack, uh, we can have a message for you in a minute. Lots of people regard Andrew's story and his identity as inherently contradictory. They ask, how can you be at the same time gay, HIV positive, Catholic and conservative? How can you be on the right and yet one of Obama's strongest defenders in the American debate? But to me, it's always been clear that there's a strong thread of consistency running through Andrew's work, and it's the philosophy of his hero, Michael Oakeshott. It's not a philosophy I share, but ever since I first read Andrew's book, Virtually Normal, when I was about 17, it's one I found absolutely fascinating and vitally important. So I want to explore that today and some of the tensions surrounding it, and it's a conversation that's hopefully going to take us from the pokey English town of East Grinstead, where Andrew was born, through an American epiphany, surviving a plague transforming the direction of the world's gay rights movement, leading the fight against the torture camps at Guantanamo Bay, and finally finding his nemesis in Rick Santorum. One tiny correction, though. Um, I, I actually was born in, in South Godston, and, oh. and, and my parents moved six months later to East Grinstead. <clears throat> yes. But East Grinstead, we should explain to American listeners, is a town in, in England which is now best known for being the centre of Scientology in England. So, Andrew, you can tell me, are you really Xenu? Is that... You can confess <laughs> no, it. No, no, no. Alas... No, no, but it is funny because when you you look up my town on Wikipedia and it has um, me and uh, L. Ron Hubbard, <laughs> it's actually full of complete... <clears throat> for some reason, there's some weird um, sort of new-agey thing where it fits into some longitude and latitude thing. So we have the Mormons, the Scientologists, and I went to a Rudolf Steiner um, nursery school. Oh. It's every... <laughs> Every conceivable cult and, and, and strange religion focuses on this middle-class English town. It was excellent preparation for covering the Republican primaries. It, it was. It was. It was really an initiation to America before I even I even knew it. But for me, it was mainly just woodlands and uh, uh, and a sort of 
yes, let's leave it at that. Woodlands. <laughs> Woodlands and cults. That was your Woodland, childhood. Yes, That's my Woodlands, mental picture of your childhood. Woodlands and cults. And my own local Catholic church. Um, and my own Catholic elementary school, which I have to say was quite lovely. And I, the weird thing is people people talk to me about Catholicism. I don't want to go off stand, but it's important, important for people to realise that I was born in 1963 as the Second Council was opening up to the world and John the Twenty Third was saying, finally, why are we afraid of modernity? Why are we afraid of truth? Let us open the windows in his wonderful terminology. Um, and the church I went to was... Uh, well, first of all, being an Irish Catholic um, family, basically, um, I had some English, some English roots as well. But um, in, a, in, a, in an English, uh, in England, uh, in the sixties, was to feel like you were this tiny minority. Sussex actually um, was always been a Catholic stronghold through the sixteenth century. So the Catholic Church was a mixture of, I would say, eighty percent Irish and 20% extremely upper-class English who'd been wealthy enough to buy out the government, a recusancy <laughs> for the last five centuries. And you could tell the difference because the Irish, the mix, would call going to mass, whereas, I'm not joking, the, arist- the aristocrats called it mass. <laughs> so they would go to mass. So even in, even in Catholicism, there was English class structure. But I loved it. I loved, I loved the rituals. I was an altar boy. Um, I was a very devout little boy. I would, I would go on Sunday morning and serve mass at the eight o'clock mass, and and coming back, I would uh, visit a little old lady um, who lived in a little cottage because um, she uh, she obviously loved my company, and and that was my Sunday ritual. Your dad worked for an insurance company. Didn't he did. He, he yes. was kind of frustrated jock. Middle management fair? insurance yeah. company hated it. But was also the captain of the high school, the town rugby team. Right. He was an athlete. He actually ran for England um, as a middle distance runner. Um, he's a big, big, big uh, rugby fan. And your mum was somewhat depressed during your childhood. Is that fair to say? That would be an understatement. She she suffered from bipolar right. depression um, and uh, uh, was hospitalised many times during my childhood and I went through uh, electroconvulsive therapy many times and disappeared from our lives uh it was one of the i think one of the hardest memories of my childhood was waving goodbye to my mother from the car as she was in this mental hospital um how old were you then well she first um was admitted when i was four which is why i went to uh primary school very early because um there was no way my father could manage Mm -hmm. us in the daytime um uh, and my mother is still bipolar and, and has had many um, incidences uh, and was uh, at, sadly also uh, in a mental hospital uh, uh, the day after I found out I was HIV positive and it was her birthday. So I had to call her to happy birthday. Anyway, it's not, it's not that much. It's, I'm sorry. But it's, it, wasn't, it wasn't. And my grandmother, who lived with us, had Alzheimer's. Um, as well, so it was. Um, it wasn't an easy childhood, really. There was lots of um, a lot of emotional instability and difficulty. And you compared yourself to Posner, the character in the History Boys. Is this kind of how do you describe him? Well, uh, I did. I did to Americans because I was trying to explain because they have no idea. 
And actually, Alan Bennett's um, high school was exactly me at that time. And it was only two years off. Even the, even the tie was the same. And I did advanced entrance with, for history um, from my grammar school, um, Reichert Grammar. Um, and that was a struggle too. I edited the, the, the grammar school magazine, but then I also edited a Samistat magazine at the same time, um, which took, made fun of the, the headmaster a lot. And, um, because they wouldn't let me do early entrance to Oxford. It wasn't done. And I insisted that I do it. And, um, I had a history teacher stood up for me and, and cause I wanted to, I, I just, I just desperately wanted to get out of my home. I, and, I wanted to leave. And, and the, your family in terms of the politics were working class Tories. Totally. Is that right? yeah. Well, my father was not really interested in politics at all. Um, Insofar as he was, I, th- I would call him a sort of basically, uh, you know, sort of conservative inclined. My grandmother, the Irish woman, was a, was fanatically Tory. That must have been unusual among Irish people at that Extreme, time. Extreme. Well, yeah. you'd think so. Um, since her own family was um, was uh, tortured by the Black and Tans. Wow. She'd tell you stories. We should explain that those were militia. They were, some, you know, the Protestant they, militia. Yeah. Um, that terrorise Catholics. But um, it wasn't... I don't, think it was, I don't think it's that unusual for first-generation immigrants right. to overcompensate. Yeah. She used to say to me, she loved Mrs. Thatcher. She, she, <laughs> she, spoke, she, could, she could recite the rosary as if you were listening to somebody narrating the sort of uh, horse race. I mean, she, she, she got through <laughs> it before you'd started the first, the, first, the first part of it. And she used to embarrass me at church because she would, she would do the Lord's Prayer and the Hail Mary at both three times the volume and five times the speed of everybody else. Um, but no, she would say to me, you know, you know, because Winston Churchill was her hero. And I think my grandfather's uh, military sort of Toryism um, was a working class conservatism. Um, she, Do you know, Andrew, what they sing at the Labour Party conference? They sing the red flag. They're all communists. Um, this is what I was brought up on. <laughs> and, and at the same time as this, one of your first memories, isn't it, is the lights going out because of the three-day week. Then it week. was then a three-day week, 1974. And we should explain this is when Britain was so riven by strikes that there were literally only three days of the week when there was electricity. Yes, and there were actually yeah. candles in supermarkets and brand products were not available. Things were put in brown packaging uh, for basic goods. The whole country was basically shut down by the unions. Um... And I felt growing up, God, to know when you walked around London in the early 70s or mid 70s, um, which is sort of uh, when I first went to high school, you just had this sense of what a collapse. I mean, you have around you all these statues and all this stuff to running the entire world and you couldn't even run a railway system. Uh, You couldn't even you couldn't even uh, produce enough energy for more than three days of a work week. But the experience that really radicalises you, I think, is, is what happened with your school. Yeah. Tell me a bit about that. Well, I, was, I took the 11 plus. Um, and I was as surprised as anybody to find out I did very well on it, um, rather freakishly well. Um, the headmaster of my primary school uh, called my parents in. 
<laughs> they were worried I had some sort of strange disease or something. He said, well, we've just never had anybody with these scores like this before. And so we really, you really need to understand that you, you have a kid who's, who's very, very bright. And we recommend that he go to a, a grammar school, um, which is what the 11 Plus did. So they're going to send me to John Fisher School, which is a Catholic school. And I remember going there and it, it, it really did seem like hell. I mean, and I mean, it In was... What way? Well, the headmaster, I mean, I, I, I no names, I guess. And, but, I mean, I, he just looked like he would bugger me the minute my parents looked the other way. And, and there was this horrible atmosphere of repression and, and doerness. And my primary school had been all crystals and flowers and blossoms. And so for me, it was a shock. So there was this huge fight on the way home from the car where my, mother, my father said, send into a comprehensive because... Anyway, these grammar schools um, tend to make them stuck up. And the last thing that he needs is to be even more stuck up. He's spending all his time reading anyway. My mother said, well, look, the, I'm, I'm going into too much detail here. But um, she said, no, we've got to get... So they found me a last-minute place at a Protestant grammar school, Rygate Grammar, which was 15 miles away from us. So I took the public bus to it, which was an hour and a half's journey there and back on public transport every day for seven years. And I loved it. Loved it, and, and uh, it was a classic old school, you know. They, they wore mortarboards and gowns, the teachers. Um, we were tested every month, and they would, great, they would rank us from 1 to 30 and post the list on the front of the classroom. Wow. They got more kids into Oxford and Cambridge that year than any other state school in the country. And the Labour government came in in 1974 and decided that this was inegalitarian and uh, tried to shut it down and uh, on the grounds that it was, um, uh, as I said, it was, uh, it was advancing people on, on uh, uh, the basis of their intelligence. This was, this was, this was against uh, morality. Um, and that radicalised me. Because I, and, they, and the school managed somehow to raise funds and went private. So suddenly people like me couldn't get there. And my brother, who was following my my my, I, the school raised enough funds to get me through the school, and then my parents just about scraped enough money together to get my brother through. And then I noticed just the success rate at Oxford declined, and Cambridge declined. And I saw this as an element of government-controlled egalitarianism to destroy the opportunities of people like me. And I thought that's socialism the advancement of mediocrity, the punishment of success, the enforcement of a phony equality. And it ended, of course, with more class division rather than less. And I despise the Labour Party of that time, and I still have anger in my voice about it, and I despise it now. I really do. And that is the time of the rise of Thatcher, the yeah. rise of Reagan, yeah. and you become pretty obsessed with them, don't yeah, you? Yeah, I, I wore Reagan 80 button. Believe it or not, a badge, a Reagan 80 badge in Rygate Grammar School. Where did you get it? I, I, I can't remember where I got it, actually. Um, I, just, I just remember having it. Yeah. Um, and was a Thatcherite. I remember having huge fights with my teachers in school about... Um, I, I was against the National Health Service. I was like, why, why isn't this a good to be sold? <laughs> <laughs> um, isn't everything a good? Why, why should... Who are you to tell people... Um, what system they have to be in. So I was sort of... Rebe- I remember also, to be a Thatcherite, young Thatcherite in 1980, was um, pretty countercultural, actually. I mean, it was, it was sort of... Uh, 
it wasn't conformist at all. It was quite non-conformist. It was kind of there was kind of coolness to it in a way, and we all and it was mixed up with like loving the jam and wearing ties and <laughs> being mods, as it were. And but at the same time as all of, the, of all as all of this, there's another kind of non-conformity which you're much less comfortable with. There's a really heartbreaking story. I think it's in your book Love Undetectable, where when you're eight years old, you asked your mother is it true that God knows everything about us? And can you just say what you said? And she said, yes, God knows everything. And I said to her, well, then there's no hope for me, is there? Because um, I knew somehow deep down then that, that something was different about me and so different that it was so bad that you couldn't even talk about it. And it's very hard for us to reconstruct this now but there were no gay people on television. The word gay or homosexual was not a word you would have known, is it? I had never heard it until um, the first time I saw the word homosexual was on the back of a, of a public bathroom stall uh, <laughs> door where it said, where well, someone wrote, my mother made me a homosexual, and underneath someone else had written, if I gave her the wool, would she make me one too? <laughs> <laughs> which I thought was quite funny. Um, and there was, there was this sort of... Uh, there, it was talked about, but but in a way that was... And I, you know, it's funny, because I remember I was a public debater in the high school, and I made a joke that I didn't even understand. It was during the Jeremy Thorpe scandal. We should explain he was the leader of the Liberal Party. He was at the time. Yeah. Who, who, <laughs> it's so English and so of its era, but basically... He had he had a lover. I, 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 I may misremember some of this. Yeah. And um, <laughs> a male worst, lover, yeah. a male lover, and in some way that I can't even remember, a dog got shot, which of course <laughs> confirms. I mean, what worse crime could there be in England than shooting <laughs> a dog? Um, and um, and I uh, and the joke I made in the in the speaking club. Uh, contest we had every year was um, life is better under the conservatives or behind a liberal <laughs> that, was, that right. was my big laugh and I actually honestly did not know why they were laughing um, I, I had some vague idea about it but it was all in code no one ever said it or talked about it I went to the library, the local library in East Grinstead, to try and look up stuff. And I looked up male development. And I actually thought for a while that, that because I had been circumcised, that that must be why I was different. Wow. <laughs> that, that's the level of public education we had. There was literally nothing. And I heard, overheard my father once talk to my mother. It's funny how you overheard hear these things as a little kid about that they discovered um, some uh, pufter in the rugby club, and, um, but they dealt with him. And that was kind of a chilling thing to hear. Um, what did that mean, dealt with him? I think it meant beat the crap out of him and threw him out of the rugby club. But I don't know. So there were, that's, but that's it. Nothing else. And so you go to Oxford. You're the first person in your family to go to university. You get into Oxford... And you arrive, and I'd say this is the period of your life when I try to picture you, I find hardest to picture, because you, the way you talk about it is you present yourself as having been quite frivolous, and you're one of the least frivolous people I know. Oh, you don't? No, 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 I'm <laughs> terribly... Um, uh, um, 
So this is the time of the famous Brideshead Revisited yes. TV adaptation. I, I, and you're I, basically living it. Yes. Um, because at that point, it was, it was, it was again, countercultural, really, against all these grim socialist student union types. Um, and I was also intoxicated. I mean, you remember, I grew up in a... Where I grew up, and I was suddenly what they called a demai, a scholar at, at Magdalen College, Oxford. I was allowed up on the, the top of the tower of Magdalen College on May Day morning, you know, in a big gown. I was given... I mean, it was, it was like a fairy tale. Um, and I loved it. I was in the new buildings, which were built in 1721. I was, and I wrote a letter in advance to, the, to college. I'm sorry this is turning into way too long, an no, no, autobiographical thing, but I remember saying they, they had a modern building across the river, which is one of these ugly 70s sort of quad, quad things. And I said, if, I, if you send me into that building, I literally wrote a letter, said, if I'm assigned to that building, it'll be an aesthetic blow from which I shall never recover. <laughs> uh, and... Um, uh, they didn't, uh, but yes, I was, I was, uh, um, I was an actor. You see, I did a lot of plays at, at Oxford, as and well as a debater. Were, your roles were oddly appropriate. You yeah. played these very conflicted, internally divided. Well, I played you the do... first amateur production of Another Country, and you do Aquas. I did Guy Burgess. I was yeah. Guy Bennett. In <laughs> I, I remember the first words were, "I'd like to pour honey all over him and lick it off again." Um, and by this time, you knew what that meant. Oh, yes. Yeah. Um, yes. But I had never touched them. And, of course, um, I fell absolutely hopelessly in love with another uh, man, I guess. Yeah, we were 18 at the time, um, which we just couldn't handle. And it's rather poignant, very, very sort of brideshead-y. And uh, I would spend all night with him but I would sleep on the floor and he would sleep on the bed. And, was he gay? Um I, I, I think that's something that that um I shouldn't really comment on because um it's a long time ago. And he has his he has his own um life and I, I uh but I do know that when he sort of broke it off I wept for basically a week. Um it was not undisputed whether I was gay at Oxford and in fact when I got elected to the presidency of the union in my second year which was ridiculously soon um, uh, and I would do silly things like I, um, uh, I I gave a speech in the union where I said it was, I, there was, I never did anything so it was a mystery and I said I have a great I, I just want to come clean about something I want to tell you all something that you probably already know and uh, I need to come out with this thing. And I was dressed in a black tie and tails. And I started undressing in the Oxford Union. And um, and underneath I had a I had an Andy Pandy costume on. And I said, I've always been a fanatic of Andy Pandy. It was a, it was a weird way of doing it. I, we should first... explain to... Um, I don't think Americans know Americans Andy know. Pandy is a, was a wooden <laughs> puppet who appeared on British television in the 1950s who was... I think we can say Andy Pandy was gay, can't we? No, no, you no. You don't think we can? No, he just wore a Harlequin outfit, which I'd managed to find. Um... <laughs> My and also the the first um, debate I held as president was on the motion this house would rather be witty than pretty, and it was introduced with the drag queen. Um, I invited Edna Everidge to come um, to speak to the union, uh, so I did lots of very campy things. I was way campier 
at Oxford. Yeah, you've, you're, you're completely um, uncapped. In all the time I've known you, you've never been camp. No, I'm, it's not. It's not my. It's. I grew up. I think it was a. I, I actually do think, and and this will be somewhat controversial, but I do think that some of those elements of gay culture were ways in which people who couldn't be fully, well, virtually normal. They had to express it somehow, mm. so it came out in those different ways. Well, Susan Sontag has that great essay, Notes on Camp, yeah. which is all about camp developed in the context of the closet uh, as a way for people to signal to each other who they were. Yeah. But it also reflects the values of the closet. So it's ironic, it's distanced, it stresses the artificial, it stresses the unrootedness of everything. It's based on ridiculing the heterosexual world that they were denied access to. Yes. And, uh, uh, and that's, exactly. of course, how you felt them. Yes. And... I think, you know, there I was watching the Generation Game with Larry Grayson. Mm. Um, you know, oh, what a gay day, you know, or Mr. This Humphreys was, on, yeah. are you being served? Um, are you free, Mr. Humphreys? And, you know, all that stuff. And Kevin Williams and the whole, you know, Kenneth Williams, sorry. Um, and that whole highly gay, or Monty Python, for God's sake. I mean, you know, the gay military parade, which is bloody hilarious um but of course graham chapman was actually the least camp of all of them actually weirdly enough yeah, that's interesting uh, if, you, if you think of it when you remember him but um so it was a weird a weird time um for me and uh well it gets weirder because you then go to harvard and begin this incredible ascent. So you arrive in the united states and within five years you've become a gap model, the editor of the most influential political magazine in the country, and then you crash out the subject of a huge scandal and apparently dying five years later. So yeah. there's this extraordinary trajectory. But you were just intoxicated with America when you first went, yeah. weren't you? And I think a lot of that did have to do with, well, two things. One, that I was naturally a very uh, outgoing and sort of freedom-loving kind of person. And... and and, you know, I did nine shows at Oxford. I, I did the union. I did everything. Ran the Poustic Society, which is what I was most famous for. You caused riots on Magdalen Bridge, Yeah, well, you? we stopped traffic. Not riots, but we actually <laughs> did stop the traffic for about, you know, 500 kids dropping sticks off Magdalen Bridge and going to the other side. Um, and it was all regarded as a devious political scheme to get myself elected president, um, which turned out to work, um, much to my opponent's... Um, uh, uh, chagrin. So poo-sticks were your equivalent of a super pack, basically. Yes, and it was also to say to people, look, I'm not your usual political hack. I'm actually kind of fun. And, and this was the golden age of political hackery. You're there yes. at the same time as William Hague yes. and Boris Johnson. Yes. Yeah. William was my, basically my sponsor for the presidency. <laughs> I was part of, with William, of the, of the Magdalen machine. And we should say William Hague later became leader of the Conservative Party, is now the equivalent to our Secretary of State, but at the time was a kind of celebrity for giving an unbelievably nerdish speech when he was about 16. Yeah, to which the of course. Conservative um, Party I, Conference. I stayed home from high school to watch the oh, Conservative Andrew. Party Conference. <laughs> I, know I, I would I have did. rescued you. I know, no. It was <laughs> we known each other that. I can even repeat parts of that speech that William do, gave. Do a bit of it now. He said, um, It's all right for you, you'll all be dead in a few years' time. <laughs> Uh, we've got to roll back the frontiers of the state. 
So when, when he was president, when I got there, and I gave the, I was gave that my was freshman. His message is: it's all right for you. You'll all be dead soon. He's to the Blue Wings Brigade. Yeah. He went to the back and he said, "You know, they're taking our freedom away, and it's all right for you. You'll be dead in a few years' time, but we're all going to inherit Eastern Europe in this country." Which is, and I thought he was right. Um, and I sort of, uh, and then when I met him at Oxford, and and he. He took an instant shining to me uh, because I was a good debater. And uh, but um, the night, by the way, of my presidential debate, when you actually gave mm. your speech, I had scheduled it. I was I was in the Merchant of Venice at, at the Oxford Playhouse at the same night, and that's how I had persuaded people I wasn't really running, <laughs> so that I could do because I had two other other uh, opponents, both of whom had run campaigns against each other, demonising each other. And I was the cute little young secretary of the union who was just an actor, a frivolous kind of character, but a good debater. Um, and then I declared a week ahead of time, shocked them all. But by that time, they couldn't unite against me. I won by the tiniest majority. I think we were up until 7, seven o'clock in the morning counting it and recounting it. I think I won by 15 votes out of about, about 1,500 um, but this is this is a very English story, know, you know. It's, it's, and it's funny because you've become even as we speak. It's funny when I see you in the states, you you talk in an American accent, and here you've you've regressed to your native accent very quickly. I but, have. But, I'm going. I'm I'm being very reminiscent about since I've been in England now for about a week and a half, and um, uh, it's brought a lot. It's brought a lot back. And um, by the way, in Downing Street, for example, uh, Andrew Cooper, I went to see who I was in the same class in Reichert Grammar School with. He's now running the polling and focus grouping for Cameron. Um, so it's all... It, England is, is a very small elite, really. And the gap between Britain and America when you went in 1984, a kind of iconic year to go, was really big. Yes, and, and what I loved was I was a classic American immigrant. Yeah. I was like, I can start over. I can leave behind everything I was before. Um, and I was determined this time not to get too famous because I thought, I don't want to be at Harvard like I was at Oxford. I actually want to be, I want to read political philosophy. I did, I actually genuinely, Johan, I genuinely went to Harvard to find out what I really believed. I knew at some point, age 21, graduating Oxford, that I was a Tory and blah, 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 but I'd never really thought it through. I, I was self-aware enough to know that we're all products of our environment and some of it was also hostility to who I didn't like but I hadn't thought it through and so I started reading political philosophy um, and teaching political and moral philosophy at Harvard um, as well as doing playing, I played Hamlet, the full Hamlet I was Hamlet uh, at, at Harvard as, long, as well as Alan in Equus and um, I dramatised the four quartets set it to Messiaen's Quartet for the End of Time, played Master Harold in Master Harold and the Boys by Athel Fugard, um, uh, was Ferdinand the Tempest. Anyway, I was known as an actor at Harvard, and I became quite famous as an actor at Harvard. And, uh, but my only problem with acting, even though I loved it, was other actors who were just simply unbearable <laughs> as human beings. I mean, I think that you just can't... I, I mean, Lovey's captures them perfectly. I just could not stand being around them. Um, 
So I, I, I actually studied philosophy. And, uh, and this is where the roots of the philosophical debate that still yeah. goes on inside your mind begins. Anyone who thinks you're inconsistent should really read that, that thesis you wrote there about Michael Oakeshott. And I want to just... When discuss- I just say one mm. thing, Johan, to you, <laughs> which is that I, when you wrote that piece about me a while back in um, Intelligent Life, you were the first person ever to have written about me that actually had read that and saw exactly there was no, this was this was this was consistent i wasn't an opportunist or jumping around i really had thought this through quite seriously and i tried to reconcile uh conservatism with modernity um and i tried to i'd fi- i tried to find a way forward and um it was genuine and uh and i loved it i loved i loved the life of the academic and the mind um, but let's just explain a bit about who Michael Oakeshott yeah, yeah. was first of all, and then I want to talk a bit about Hayek yeah. as well. Yeah. So, how would you best summarise Oakeshott? Well, if I were philosophically speaking, I would say he provided a conservative epistemological defence of contemporary uh, liberal society. In other words, he was the first to say, "Look." If you, he wasn't inter- he wasn't very interested in Burke. He, he thought he was overvalued, but that um, he was more interested in in Montaigne and Hume. Um, and notice that in and he and he also didn't believe that there were these great permanent ideologies. Um, he believed that human society evolved in a rather organic, chaotic, Darwinian way. He thought it was like language, like the way we acquire language. Yes. Um, the way we human beings develop rules, even in improvised situations. His famous analogy was the rules of cricket, which no one ever sat down and decided what the rules of cricket were. They started playing cricket, and as the decades went by, they formalised, added certain rules until they knew what it was. And there was, and and he also saw the English Constitution as another classic slow evolution of practice, because his fundamental in the great book is experience in its modes where which was a mind blower for me because it basically said that that essentially that all that 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 the way we think occurs in different modes and that we can the most fundamental error we make is confusing one mode with another so the ideology the ideological fallacy was to think that what was philosophically true was also practically true. <laughs> you can impose a perfect intellectual system on a messy human culture. And uh, he had this wonderful analogy of, of, of like ideology being like a textbook for how people should live. And, and yes, it could make perfect sense on paper. But human beings um, interact in very complicated, different ways. And as time goes by, they change. And so he said, if you were governing the world from that book, you'd keep having to look up from it just to make sure they're all doing what they should be doing. And increasing that they wouldn't be following the rules, they'd be developing their own. And he said, at some point, anybody trying to governing, govern that society for real will at some point have to close the book. So the, the thing I think that Hayek and Oakeshott share is the conviction that we are incredibly limited in what we know. Just our apparatus is very limited in our reasoning, our capacity for reason and our capacity for knowledge, that we're basically staring at the whole universe through a drinking straw. We just don't know very much about it. We're going to be... Oakeshott said we should build politics on the radical acceptance of what we cannot know for sure. Yes. And I think we start in in Harvard with these two thinkers, begins, I think, these twin tracks, which... 
I think you have both have running in your mind at the same time, and I think there's some cognitive dissonance there. I don't say that with any sense of superiority. No, no, no. Any intelligent no, no, no. person is riddled with cognitive dissonance. So you've got that. You've got Oakeshott's approach to our epistemological limits. Then you've got Hayek's approach, which is very different. So Hayek is an Austrian economist. He comes here to London and to Chicago. For Hayek, his reaction to things being limited is very different. So with Oakeshott, it's about stressing the provisionality of all institutions. Every institution needs to be constantly tested against empirical evidence, needs to be treated very sceptically. Hayek, I don't think that's true. Hayek applies that to all institutions but one. He says, obviously, the fact that we're so limited, all human beings are limited, makes planning impossible. So the individual planner in the Kremlin or Whitehall or wherever, they just can't know the needs of millions of people. And that's, that, that's the analogy of the book I just used. Exactly. Yeah. But he then goes a step further. He says, the market mechanism is different because the market mechanism is basically the subtle accumulation of millions of purchasing signals. So X number of people prefer Snickers bars to Mars bars. They express mm. that in their divert, you know, dispersed individual choices every day. And so the market as an institution knows more than any human being can do. It's the aggregation of human knowledge. And he turns that into basically a kind of god. He yeah. then says, because of that... Dis- I want to say why I think... We must never intervene in that. Yeah. In fact, our interventions must be... But look, uh, Oakeshott, um, Oakeshott, I think his fundamental critique of Hayek was that, sorry, you've turned a critique of systems into a system. Yeah. You, you've ended up contradicting yourself. Also, that human beings are so much more than, than the pursuit of material well-being. This is a crass, shallow idea of what human society is about. Human society is about love and passion and beauty and aesthetics. Um, and, uh, uh, and, and so to reduce the complexity of human experience and the amazing achievement of European civilization, which he, which had, he believed enabled the individual, which was his great... Uh, in other words, Oakeshott's God was the fully realized individual... Um, and he, he differed again again with the Straussians in America, the conservatives, in, in, in preferring personality to virtue. He, he, he didn't want all human beings to be the same, to reflect the same virtues. He loved Augustine because he thought Augustine was the first actual modern human being thinking entirely for himself, distinctly having a personality. That's why he loved Montaigne, who was happy to pour out all these incoherences and inconsistencies and curiosities. And Oakeshott was also um, a libertine. He was a bohemian. Um, he slept with God knows how many women. Um, he, he was once caught screwing on a public beach. He turned down a knighthood from Thatcher. Um, he didn't want to be co-opted by anybody. And essentially, if you look at the criticisms of Oakeshott, they're very like the conservative criticisms of you. There were critics who said, well, he presents conservatism but ends up affirming a kind of radical liberalism, yeah. which, of course, is what yeah. Hugh Hewitt or Jonah yeah, Goldberg yeah. or whatever absolutely. would say about you. Yeah, absolutely, because they don't... They don't um, and the Straussians, by which I mean the followers of Leo Strauss, mm. I remember having a conversation with, with Irving Crystal. Mm. Um, and Gertrude Himmelfarb, who discovered me as this quote-unquote conservative. And we should say these are the two of the most leading neoconservative Early neoconservatives, yeah. yes. Irving Crystal's now died. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
And um, <clears throat> they regard the Upanishad as a, a, a Nietzschean nihilist. There are no firm virtues. There is no such thing as human nature that is universal because everything is contingent and cultural. Um, they regarded him as a deeply suspect individual. Now, he, he did prefer, in the 50s, his critique of the social welfare state was a very Hayekian one, but you can see where it comes from. It comes from, who do you think you are trying to start England anew after but this the is, war? But this is, a, this is, I think, one of the valuable insights, someone who's very much not a conservative, this is one of the really valuable insights of conservatism, which is to say, we just don't know very much. So yeah. you've got to be really careful. If I think about the two things... In, terms, in political terms that I've got most wrong, the Iraq war, where we were both wrong, and the Euro, they were both... I was wrong because I just didn't know enough, because no one... I mean, there were lots of people who were right about both. You were right about the Euro. But the phenomenal complexity of those situations, the simplicity in, you know, of my motives were not enough to get you through the extreme complexity of those situations. There's also uh, probably the greatest phrase, that Oakeshott wasn't actually that interested in those political projects. Mm. Um, one of his most beautiful quotes is that he would, always pre- he would always prefer present laughter to utopian bliss. <laughs> that he didn't That's think... A great line. He, he, that in the end, these grand projects that we humans are trying to build for ourselves to make ourselves better miss the joy of life now. He's, the, he's, he's a Taoist... But this He's is the only conservative thinker that's constantly citing Chinese uh, philosophers and Buddhists. Um, and my dissertation was really ended up um, with uh, feeling that within the surface of his, underneath the surface, there must be, because there must be a spiritual dimension here. He must have an understanding of Christianity or some value system that surpasses the market and that gives, gives real value um, to the individual personality because God loves you for who you are. But you've oscillated in your career. So I find this part of you by far the most you know, appealing and it produces the times when we most agree, although I disagree with the Christian element of it. Right. That there are other times when you're much closer to the Hayekian pole where you... Uh, don't apply that Oakeshottian scepticism to the market mechanism itself. Uh, I think the, my main problem with Hayek, it's not that Hayek's wrong about markets, it's that it's a very limited truth. I think basically for two reasons, because the, the signal that the market receives is not based on each individual, it's based on each dollar. So Bill Gates, as one man, sends a louder signal than you know the bottom 50 million Americans, than whole African countries. So that's why you need a redistributive state in order for market signals to actually work, you need to make sure there's some basic entry point that people share. Of course, Hayek thought exactly the opposite. He thought any government redistribution was famously the title of one of his books, The Road to Serfdom. I think that, that just proved to be wrong. The other is, of course, that the market doesn't recognise market externalities. And this is where Eric Schott's critique comes in very importantly as well. The market is very good at registering those price signals. It's not good at registering, say, if you're trashing the ecosystem while getting those price signals. Yes, and I think um, from the get-go, um, for me... Look, there's also an Oakshottian point about context and cultural context. Um, in the 1960s and 70s, when liberal managerialism and utopianism was at its peak... And Oakeshott, remember, was ostracized 
completely within his own sphere. I mean, there was an entire... His, his books, his works were essentially ignored. Um, there was an entire edition in the 70s of political theory dedicated to trashing him entirely from the left. He was regarded as a freak. Um, so, and in the 60s and 70s, especially the 70s, there is an Okshatian defense of Hayekian economics as a contingent correction to a... Now, I'll tell you this, Johan, um, and I think it was the right contingent, but but not not forever, (laughs) because things would change again. And the abuses of one system would, would, and my view is increasingly, and this has been happening to me over the last few years, um, keeping my eyes and ears open, is that I think that the the, that Hayekian moment, which I think was necessary at the time, has run its course and has actually led now to problems that it, it itself needs correcting from the other direction. And the genius of Oakshot was he, he posited two great strains in European political thought, that which he called enterprise association, which meant collective action. You know, you have to collectively make decisions because there are problems that emerge through a changing society that we have to collectively address. There's no way to do it any other way. Then there is civil association in which we're all free and individuals. And and he'd much rather live in a world of civil association. There's no question about it. But he insisted, and you see this most in the book on human conduct, that the two were vital that the, the interaction between the two was what kept the ship of state afloat. And in fact, the true conservative sought balance and stability and coherence. So I think Oakeshott could easily, and this is, I think is why it's consistent for me, for example, to think, no, I actually think at this point, economic inequality and income inequality in America is destabilizing the coherence and stability of this society. It's undermining core traditional values such as meritocracy and social mobility, um, that free markets can be abused and the, and the government needs to step in. Oakeshott believed both traditions were necessary. In fact, the genius of the West was to have both and to be able to mix the two and, and to go from one to the other depending upon contingent circumstances. This is to do no real justice to his, um, you know, his, his work on aesthetics um, I think his greatest essay of all is, is one with one of the most beautiful titles, The Voice of Poetry in the Conversation of Mankind. Um, he, he, he didn't like argument. He preferred conversation in which he didn't want to win an argument. He wanted to carry on a debate. Um, and let me tell you one very simple, really strange confluence of events. I went to England in 1989 to tell my parents that I was gay, to come out, finally. And I'd also got introduction. I was only, the only second ever PhD written on Oakshot. He was completely ignored. And we should explain that now there's a small now cottage a industry, industry. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you were way ahead of your time on that. I was, and the reason was because I, I read his introduction to Hobbes' Leviathan and was so blown away intellectually that I started to study it and found there was no secondary literature at all. One, actually, uh, Paul Franco, who's another hilarious character, who wrote, a, wrote an important but much more 
uh, it's a sort of straightforward attempt to describe what Oakeshott believed. Um, uh, and my sister, God bless her, kind of leaked the news to my dad that I might be telling them this. And, um, and so blew up my timing. And I was supposed to go visit Oakeshott that visit. And I was going to go visit him because I hadn't written my last chapter on religion and I wanted to talk, talk to Oakeshott about religion, which he'd written in the 30s about and never since. And yet I thought, what, what is it? There's, there was hints and guesses throughout the... the you've read my dissertation, so you know. Um, anyway, my sister blew it. I had to go tell my parents. And the next day was my schedule to go to see Oakeshott. So I came out one day. The following day, I got on the train and went to see my mentor at the age of 90. And he was living in a, in a little cottage. In a slate and... cottage on the, uh, near Langton Matravers in a, in a village where no one even knew who he was. When there was a big fuss about his funeral, no one in the village had any idea who he was. And what was he like when you met him? He met me, he was a very frail, old and gentle, kind, mischievous kind of man. Met me at his gate, brought me in, made me a little lunch. There was no central heating, there was just a coal fire. It was a slate cottage. It was a, it was a, a loft, really. And his, um, I think his third or fourth wife um, was there, but kind of not there. We sat in front of the fire on an autumn afternoon, and I, he had already read the first four chapters of the dissertation. Um, and he was thrilled, of course, that a Harvard person had finally written something. But my distance is quite critical because <laughs> he, 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 sure. he himself moved from a much more Hegelian idealist position to a much more sort of postmodernist position almost of, yeah. of what the hell can we ever know about anything, um, influenced by Wittgenstein and language. Um, but through it all, I felt there must be a religious doctrine in here. So I asked him, um, which was sort of ballsy in a way. You wrote about religion in your career. Um, why have you not written about it? He said, well, there is one essay I, I, I've always meant to write, and I think it's probably too late for me to write it, but it's about, um, it's about an idea of salvation that has nothing whatsoever to do with the future. And what did he mean by that? <laughs> That was my question. This is doubtful. Well, first yeah. of all, I wanted to listen and think about that. And I said, you mean in contradistinction to the classic Christian notion that when we die, we're saved? He said, well, I wouldn't put it like that. <laughs> he, said, um, he said, but my problem with salvation is who would ever want to be saved? <laughs> wow. What a horrible fate. Do you think God created us, if God created us, so that we'd all become some uniform piece of goodness, that all our idiosyncrasies, that all our personalities would dissolve into some pure salvation? What a horrifying idea. That's hell. No, oh, God loves us as we are. But and this- he, sees, he sees God's relationship with us as this endless conversation full of jokes and laughter, and irony. Um, uh, and that, that, of course, puts him much more in an Eastern 
mystical tradition of Christianity. He was also, in his early works in the 30s, a modernist Christian, utterly hostile to the notion that there are creeds founded thousands of years ago that must maintain their validity forever, including now, that we must follow. We're following dead things. If a Christianity isn't alive and modern, it doesn't exist. And also his view was that religion did not belong in the, in the sphere of philosophy of eternal truth. It belonged in the practical realm. Um, and when I said, you mean like what Hobbes would say, the satisfaction of wants, he said no. He said it's some strange fusion of the practical world and the poetic one. When suddenly on a day you see a shaft of sunlight and you're transported into something like eternity for a second and you live that and you embrace it. And I think also underneath all this there was a, there was a real belief that sex is also an insight into present salvation because he was a sexual fanatic, um, uh, never stopped uh, searching he, I mean, he, he, there, there's, there's going to be a biography by George Grant coming out, which I know a little bit about in advance, but he said his life was devoted to finding the perfect woman. He was basically the polar opposite of Rick Santorum, wasn't he? Yes. Yeah. Okay, well, we can come back to that. But there's, there's another dimension to um, Oakeshott's conservatism that runs through your work and recurs sometimes, which is his environmentalism you wrote people may not know this you wrote the first kind of pamphlet advocating a kind of green conservatism since you know theodore roosevelt you were arguing for a real revival of green conservatism when you worked for the conservative party in the in the 80s didn't yeah you? Well, well actually for the uh, the policy um center for policy studies which was thatcher's private think tank she didn't like the thing at all <laughs> <laughs> and it and it and it fell on very deaf ears, except for a few people who really, I think, saw what I was trying to get at, which is that if you love the present, I mean, if conservatism is really about loving the present, not worshipping some mythical past, being totally comfortable in the world, um, then you feel grief when that's interrupted <laughs> or when that's altered in some dramatic and cruel way. And you want to conserve what you love. So when you cut down that beautiful old, old oak tree in the middle of, in the middle of a, a village green, let's say, to use a rather bucolic phrase, or you demolish that pretty little building that wasn't that distinguished, but, but people had lived there and seen it for years and in part of their community, you were really doing some horrible damage. But this has a much more epic application now, which is, of course, we're not chopping down the oak tree, we're trashing the ecosystem yes. in ways that are increasingly irreparable. For the pursuit of pure materialism, um, which he, I think, would regard as anathema. Um, there's nothing materialistic in his work at all. He's an ascetic in many ways. And the great people he loved were indifferent to wealth or money or power. I think that's the other thing about him. And I think that you could make a very strong critique of his political philosophy in saying it doesn't account for power. But isn't there another potential critique, which is... I think you become very moving and lyrical when you talk about Oakshot and you, you make lots of important critiques, but I think it can also lead you to a kind of fatalism. Oakshot at times seems to be saying he thinks the whole Enlightenment project was just a mistake, a tragic mistake, and will inevitably fall apart. 
And I wonder if sometimes when you talk about global warming, when the liberal rationalist bit of you should kick in to say, okay, here are the solutions, you fall into a more melancholic, maybe it's all gone wrong, maybe it was all doomed from the beginning mode. Is that, is that fair? Not entirely, but not unfair. Not entirely unfair either. I think that may be a if mood someone, more than a... I've searched for the last... I mean, obviously, um, for example, Cap and Trade, mm. when I was writing in the 80s, was all about acid rain, actually, yeah. was a, and closing the ozone layer. It was a fantastic success. And the idea was you'd be more flexible. You'd allow industries to adapt more slowly and pragmatically rather than top-down control. Um, uh, but yes, there is a fatalism there. There is a fatalism there, which I do, uh, in my bleaker mo- moods, <laughs> feel. Um, I do think, and this is also where I think he's actually a Christian thinker, um, because I actually do believe that the greatest critique of materialism is Christianity. Um, that that Jesus, I mean, the most radical, practical thing that Jesus preached was give up everything you have. I mean, it's the one rich man, young rich man comes to him and says, I've done everything, I buy by law, I love my neighbour, I'm like, and what, what, what do I need to get into the kingdom of heaven? He said, give everything you have away. But this Be is homeless. The, this is the radical disjunction in your thought, though, isn't it, between yeah. the part of you that thinks like this and the part of you that does admire quite a lot of Hayek. What you're saying is not the Paul Ryan plan. <laughs> no. No. Um, look, there's an uber Toryism, the highest Toryism, <laughs> in which is we're all doomed. His last ever essay, which is a, actually a, a parable, a story, the retelling of the story of Babel, um, uh, is really a retelling of the story of, 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 of the fall. Um, uh, I think we have to grapple with a paradox, which is that, of course, I'm only talking to you today because of the advances of the scientific revolution, which I don't think he would have any problems with, <laughs> clearly didn't have any problems with. Um, but making these things goods in themselves, as opposed to means to human happiness and a human enjoyment of the world they live in, is, 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 is the failure. And we, if we can do practical things to mitigate what seemed to be emerging problems that we didn't anticipate, and we didn't, we didn't really figure this out for the last... 15 to 20 years, you know, carbon, you know, it, it, you know, this is not something that we grew up, that I grew up thinking about. So it's an emergent problem. And I think you'd be totally open, and I'm totally open to pragmatic. Um, but I do think that he would argue, and I don't want to speak for him, of course, but I would argue, let's put it this way, that the, that the break, and I wouldn't say it's the Enlightenment, I think it's Machiavelli on, that what, what politics should be about should be the um, the advancement of man's estate on earth, our material well-being, as well as uh, that that shift of values from a Christian view, that that is not our goal on earth, that our goal on earth is to live in a just society and to love one another and to accept the realities of our mortality, of illness, of disease, and so on. Um, uh, I think that's, that's where he's coming from. Um, and I would strike, try and strike a middle course in saying, yes, absolutely, it is a good thing, an unquestionably good thing, that I'm alive today, 
that that so many people even in the third world, in the developing world, in the last 10 years, have seen an extraordinary increase in their standard of living and their lack of absolutely appalling poverty. Um, but that, and if we can find a way to mitigate these effects, we should try. But another um, way... But I, I just yeah. don't see... I, I, I'll be honest with you, Johanna, I don't see a way. I don't see... And no one's proposing anything even remotely practically feasible for stopping us destroying this planet. I think the forces behind it are so overpowering and we in the West created them and we have now unleashed them on the entire planet and it will destroy us. And I think but that... It depends who you mean by we, Andrew. I mean, I did not create British petroleum. Western society. Most people, yeah. But... Material well-being, which then depended upon energy. But those are forces that are effectively hijacking our political process. No, 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 no. They're what people want. I think enough people would be in favour of a transition to a renewable economy if the implications for jobs are explained and so on. It's it's The block on that, you don't think that's true? The whole green jobs thing, I wish to God were true. It's a complete delusion. Um, there are the li- only thing that could work, I think, is massive nuclear power, um, uh, like complete, you know, uh, use of nuclear power. And the uh, I think that's the only thing. But it may be too late for that too. I just, I just, I, I just think that what from from a from a Christian point of view, that the the engine we have set in motion is programmed to self destruct. And what does that self destruction look? Like? I don't know. I know if you look at 200,000 years of human existence on Earth, it's a flat line until the last 200 years where it's actually almost a vertical line upwards. And I've never seen a graph like that that doesn't come vertically downwards almost as quickly. So it's interesting because you've ended up in a position, another way of framing this, this debate is Naomi Klein wrote a really interesting essay recently called Capitalism versus the Climate, where from a very different direction you're actually ending up agreeing with Naomi. She argues that you can't have infinite growth on a finite planet. No. It's not possible. No. There will be an ecological... Either you change that system or you get an ecological crash. But again, we're, we're a very... But, but, but we, I think the, the other answer to that is, yes, but the world, the planet will survive. Oh, sure. But, but it There'll will be... There'll be a rock in space. Not necessarily. It'll yeah. be... It, there have been huge shifts in the planet's, you know, billions of years. How, many, how long have we been as Earth existed? <laughs> but, I mean, obviously, climactic forces... Um, have changed, wiped out entire... Nothing is going to be... We're not talking about the meteor that wiped out the dinosaurs and changed the world forever, right? We're not talking about that overnight. But we are talking about people living in the Arctic um, and the whole centre of the world being uninhabitably hot. Um, I can't believe that that is a better or more feasible option than just changing our economic system, than a transition to renewable energies, than... We can't change the economic system because... Uh, people want things, and they're prefer- radically different. They're radically different systems. I mean, Scotland, for example, we're not talking about some remote. You know, we're not talking about some distant model. Scotland, for example, will run on renewable energy within fifteen years. That that's not okay. Glasgow isn't the best place in the world, but it's not. It's <laughs> just because it's, it's throwing wind at yeah. you at a, at a ghastly rate. Yeah. Um, you know, but that's not uh, China. Look, I hope you're right. A transition to renewable energy seems to be more feasible than a transition to a horrific, uninhabitable world. Well, 
Yes, and I would support it. <laughs> Absolutely. And there are um, liberal rationalist models for getting there. This and I think Fukushima, for example, yeah. proves nuclear power's yeah. great potential. Yeah, this is when George Monbiot... Pa- yeah. If a nuclear power plant can survive both a tsunami and an earthquake... And basically Godzilla, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's not such a bad idea. Um, but there are liberal rationalist models for getting through this. Contraction and convergence is one. I agree it's not one that we could get through the American political system. Now, contraction and convergence is a system where we know more or less the safe carbon budget of the planet we know how much we can safely emit each year so you divide that equally among the population of the world there's a huge gap at the moment between the high emitters like you and me and everyone we know and the low emitters for each year that gap continues the rich countries compensate the poor countries while we converge in the middle now i agree you're not going to get through the senate tomorrow i agree with you but that plan has to be more feasible than the plan which is let's just descend into a hellish inferno um well, I don't think it's quite a hellish inferno yet. Yeah, and that's no, the but, problem. It's like the boiling frog yeah. problem, which I know is a myth, but nonetheless is a great metaphor. <laughs> well, actually, a better analogy is it's like, pulling the trigger, it's like pulling the trigger of a gun. Once you pull the trigger, you can't take the bullet back. Um, actually, the frog is better. I'll give you that. Yes, except again, we go back to what we started with. How do we know? How do we know this? How I do mean, we know global warming's happening? No, no, no. We know yeah. what's going on. We don't know... Um, whether this global great plan you have in mind could work, whether it could have even worse unintended consequences. But this is is one of my issues with Oakshire, actually. It's interesting you'd say that. Because it's absolutely true that grand rationalist plans uh, present great flaws. Inactivity also poses a great flaw, particularly inactivity in the face of a terrible crisis. So I think it imposes... Oakshot imposes a high burden of scepticism, but that shouldn't cross over into nihilism. Yes. That shouldn't cross over into, well, therefore, nothing can work. Yes, and that's why if you read, I mean, and you do read my blog, sure. it, it's engaged in these issues. And my own view is that, is that with any luck, technology will find a solution to this, uh, because I frankly do think some great global compact is, 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 the, is highly unlikely. But the global compact spurs the technological innovation. They're not opposing alternatives. If you have a cap on, global, on, on emissions, that requires then a huge technological drive. You know, that will spur it. If we just carry on with everyone being able to burn coal but and you, oil... But that's not a free society. But freedom, I mean, we all agree that my freedom to swing my fist ends with your nose and my freedom to burn coal ends with the right of Bangladeshi children not to drown. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Well, yes, except that, of course, what Oakshaw would also say is that you're talking about universal citizenship. This is not how the world has emerged. This is not where we are at culturally or developmentally. But Britain didn't culturally or developmentally have British citizenship until it did. Yes, but we are, we are, but the idea of global citizenship, um, well, I think Oakshop would say it's meaningless. It's, 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 it's as meaningless as the euro. I mean, it is, it, it's everything starts at home. And that all we really know is what we're doing. And I think the Oakshotian response would be, um, uh, no, start living your lives knowing that this is happening. Um, and adjust your your way of being. He himself, I don't think, contributed much carbon to the atmosphere. Um, he lived a very rustic, simple life. Um, but look, I, I I I think I think what he's what he would say is none of this would be happening had not human beings decided that 
their material well-being was their supreme goal. None of it. This reminds me of one of the most hilarious and joyous moments in your career, which is when you appeared on the radio show of Hugh Hewitt. I should explain to British listeners that Hugh Hewitt is a kind of horrendous Republican hack, kind of braying Republican hack, and Andrew went on his show. And, uh, <laughs> do you want to explain? I don't know. I well, you basically it, said, why do you have so much advertising? You claim to be a Christian, yes. Jesus threw the moneylenders out of the yes, temple. Yes, yes, yes. And there was this kind of stunned incredulity. On yes, his, no, yeah. exactly. Um, and... You know, the book I'm trying to write in my head, um, which has a title but not nothing in it, it's called Sheer Christianity. See, I think the only solution to this really is Christianity. What we have to understand in our souls is this materialism isn't making us happier. It's interesting because I agree with that, and yet one of the ways out of this Oakshottian fog, the way that you do it and the way that is essential to do it is empiricism. So empirical observance of the world. It's one of the reasons why your blog is so exciting. You are constantly empirically observing things. Now, we all have cognitive biases and so on, but you work, genuinely work very hard to overcome your cognitive biases. And yet your empiricism seems to bump up into this problem, which is if you follow the evidence for God, you don't find any. There is none. In fact, the natural world suggests to us very strongly that all the Christian explanations and the Muslim explanations and the Jewish explanations are just empirically wrong. So where, what is the origin of this, of this belief in God, given there is no evidence for it? Have you seen the Tree of Life? Yes. Um, that's the empirical evidence of God. Explain that to me. You either believe that we live in a world entirely of nature... Or you believe that we live in a world in which there is some mysterious other force called grace. Where that grace comes from, why we actually... Now, you can find all sorts of Darwinian explanations for love. Um, uh, but um, uh, we, we know that what makes life living, worth living, is, is love and grace and forgiveness. Um, not money and power and wealth. Um, in fact, we know uh, quite powerfully that that's true. <laughs> um, I've, I've already met very, very wealthy people who are anything but basically miserable. Um, same is true of fame and celebrity, which is the other great delusion of our time. Um, I do think the solution to all of these problems is at root spiritual. And I do do not think that God, look, God by definition, right, definitionally, is beyond our understanding. So I know that sounds like a cop-out in a way, because it is. It's where we reach our sort of impasse. Um, therefore, we cannot know for sure that God is there. Therefore, faith is absolutely saturated in doubt. But do you think there are any empirical claims in Christianity? Do you think Jesus Christ actually lived and actually rose from the dead? Oh, Yes. But those are empirical claims, aren't they? Well, I think that he existed is not a very... OK, no, that's fine. I, I think he existed. But do you, do you think he rose from the dead, physically? It, it depends what you mean by that. And the Gospels will tell you, I think, about five different... Alter- the Gospels will tell you five different <laughs> versions of it. And the Gospels themselves are a function of oral histories written 100 years later. This, this much we know now. We also know that those Gospels weren't the only ones. A whole bunch of other Gospels written uh, that many years later based upon stories about this person. So so did he rise from the dead in the sense that 
um, did he literally wake up, take off the thing and walk out and say hi? Yeah, so basically a Palestinian zombie theory of Jesus' <laughs> yes, resurrection. The, the, the yeah. walking dead, yes. Um, there's, not, there's really not much evidence of that in the Gospels or the Acts at all. Um, we know that, that, the, that the, we're told that the, uh, uh, that the, 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 the clothing, that the, what, what they call it, the, the stuff they wrap them in was there. And then we have some strange story of someone they met near the tomb who told them that Jesus had gone away. And afterwards, afterwards, they think, oh, that was an angel telling us something. Then we have the story of disciples who had known and lived and followed Jesus for three years, walking to Emmaus with another human being. But do you and when, no, let me finish because sure. this is important. Mm-mm. And they sit down and have dinner with him. And when he breaks the bread, they suddenly realize he's Jesus. What does that mean? That's the resurrected Jesus. Then we also have the story in which Jesus appears suddenly, not walk, not bang, not 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 <laughs> come in. Hello, <laughs> who's there? <laughs> it's Jesus. Jesus, who? Um, it's, it's he's there he suddenly appears and in suddenly appearing Thomas doubts and is asked to put his hand in the wounds of Jesus' own body to, to prove the physicality of the resurrection so we have a bunch of contradictory accounts of what his resurrection meant but when you read them do you believe them the way that I believe in Anna Karenina when I read Anna Karenina no you, you believe them in a more literal way yeah no. literal is not the right word um, I believe that, look, if God is grace, if God is the balance of the cruelty and pain of nature, as well as its joys as well, um, but if, if, if that is what God is, and is in some ways my belief that that is the ultimate power in the world, in the universe, grace, love, um, then how would human beings ever know this fact? And the truth is that many didn't <laughs> and don't and live lives, and I have every respect for them because empirically there's no reason to. But a few individuals in human history across all sorts of cultures have, for some reason or other, had an experience or epiphany that they believe something, and the Buddha is clearly one of them. There are clearly things within the Quran that clearly do speak of some very, very similar things, of, of the universality of love for human beings. Um, and, and then we have Jesus and the saints who emerged. Now, there were loads of messiahs wandering around Israel at the time, Palestine at the time. Um, few of them had that same impact. Now, I know some of it's entirely Just accidental one because of, of Constantine, be, yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the Roman Empire, blah, blah, blah. But look, all of it's going to... Let's, let's say there was a thousand Jesuses um, that occurred somewhere, somewhere, who got in, caught onto this. Um, uh, it had to enter human consciousness at some point. So it has to have a contingent moment so in know, which it yeah. enters human history. This insight that this possibility could be true. I happen to think that Jesus uh, had that insight in a way that was clearly, to those around him, staggering and extraordinary, and to such an extent that the only way they could express it was in describing things like miracles. But the real miracle is that they all left everything they ever believed in, their wives, families, and followed this man on a crazy quest 
and loving, and not just loving one another, but loving the people who hate you um, and forgiving them everything. Um, that happened. Um, and that, once it had entered human consciousness, has never left it and will never leave it because it isn't something that can be disproved empirically. And so the answer is, do we experience it as human beings, which is all we know. We go back to Montaigne, we go back to Hume. Do we experience it? Yes. It has filled me in my life sometimes, unexpectedly, with such joy and hope that I have been overwhelmed. It has picked me up off the ground and, and lifted me into a life that is more intense and worth living than anything I have ever experienced before. And even when I have... And by the way, some of that has been replicated <laughs> on magic, magic mushrooms. I mean, I think that... And if you look at the brains of monks and nuns, different denominations in deep meditation who have withdrawn from the material practical world entirely into this world of grace. They all look exactly the same. And I, they are happy. I don't They begr- are happy. I don't begrudge them their happiness. But of course you don't. I know, why would you? I know as a But why are they happy, Johan? But I can show you Scientologists who are very happy, but we wouldn't believe that Xenu was no, I, well, I know Xenu is you the couldn't evil put one, them under MRIs and show and show that in the state, the serotonin levels of their brains ha- and the permanent structure of their brains has changed. I suspect you could. I suspect there are Scientologists who believe they've become a clear, who probably John Travolta, uh, who, you know, who, who would who would be experiencing quite profound emotions. I don't think that would. I think that tells us something Different. about the individual having that feeling. I don't think it tells us something of about the idea they that they believe is creating that. And feeling. yet, every human society. Has, has constructed um, a notion of... And not only that... Oh, but I have that. I'm, I'm a Dawkinsian atheist, but I have, I have those feelings of amazing transcendence. They come when I'm listening to great music or they come when I'm contemplating no, an extraordinary novel. Yeah, I think so. Who, but love has to come from some other being. No, I Who's don't think it does. You? What's loving you? Other human beings who evolved on the same rock as me from the same, you know, basic biological material but I just want to say that although I, I profoundly disagree with you and find it quite confusing what I don't agree with is Sam Harris who I like and respect who says moderate religious people are as much our enemy as fundamentalist religious people I think that's profoundly wrong I do too I think you and I you know you and I and Ishad Manji who's a great friend of ours a liberal Muslim you know, can sit around and have a civilised conversation about this where we just disagree and don't really understand each other and I've spent yeah a whole night talking to Hitchens yeah. through the stuff, a, a man I love yeah. and, and, and will always love. And, uh, and um, yeah, so I, I, I uh, and my dearest friend who died, my friend Patrick, I, I, I lay next to him weeks before he died as a skeleton. And, and I, because I was the only one who had the disease, he was had this is back when everybody was dying. There was no, not, no cure at all. And I said, Patrick, what do you think of death? What are you, what are you thinking? And he's a Catholic, went to church with me, and he said, all I see is a great blackness coming towards me, and I'm very frightened. And I held him. And, uh, but, that, but that's where there wasn't a great blackness, because you were another human being there yeah, to hold him. Yeah. And that, that's but better that, than any imaginary that's a, heaven. That's isn't better that than a mystery? Any... 
I don't find it mysterious. I find it lovely. I don't find it mysterious. Do you really, you really, do you really think that it does justice to the human condition to call that serotonin levels? Oh no, it doesn't. Sure, but that, but that would be like saying you're reducing the poetry of Shakespeare to the printed words yeah. on the page, or yeah. But where, where but I, it's not aesthetic. It's not an aesthetic experience. I think where we. One area where we're completely united is we have a kind of shared enemy in fundamentalism. Yes. Because fundamentalists really hate people like you and people like me. Because fundamentalists don't actually believe, you see. So I think it's because they believe too much. No, no, no. I think it's because they're scared they don't believe. Well, it's interesting because that's part of your experience, isn't it? That you were a fundamentalist as a child as a result of a lot of the difficulties you had. Is that fair to say? You took your, your baptism, yes. your christening name was Sir Thomas More, wasn't yeah, it? Saint it's Thomas great, More. Yeah, St. Thomas More, sorry. Not Sir <laughs> well, Thomas no. More. Sir <laughs> Thomas to you, yeah. St. Thomas to me, yeah. honey. Uh, but, <laughs> but no, uh, but and also, look, Thomas More burned people at the stake. Yeah. Um, no, I do think there was a rigidity to my uh, form of religion. This is in your adolescence. In my adolescence and early adulthood, to be honest, in, uh, and which is why I think so many gay men end up fundamentalists because it is it is they're grasping on something that will make them feel secure when deep down they're not whereas true faith comes from total opening up to the world accepting you know nothing and giving up to god's love um or in your case giving up to the transcendence of of human kindness or aesthetic heights of 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 transcendence we will never know you or I, Johan, <laughs> because it's unknowable of what that really means. But all I can say is that um, I do believe that behind all of this chaotic, immense, massive universe and its begin- beginning, I do, not, I do not at some fundamental level believe it is just matter. <laughs>